fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies. Welcome to another episode of Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies. This is the show that takes your favorite fictional science and technology and makes it a reality. We do that. We are the Brain Trust. I am the analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn. With me, physics phenom, Dr. Michael Denon. Dan, great to be here. I have to say, this is going to be a fun episode, but it does remind me how in the cartoon world I tend to be a little sad because my favorite animal are cats, and they usually get the raw end of the stick. That's for sure. There's definitely a very interesting predator-prey relationship in the cartoon world, which we're going to get to in a second after we introduce our enigmatic engineer, Ben Siebser. Ben, where are you broadcasting from this week? You know, I'm outside and I've seen this very cute cat and mouse here that seem to be friends, but they really seem to kind of abuse each other too. You know, I like that you mentioned that because we're talking about Tom and Jerry here. And one of the things that I love, not only rewatching this, but watching this from my youth, is there's a very interesting social dynamic between between Tom and Jerry. You know, you're you're as the audience, you're conditioned to root for Jerry because he is the prey and Tom is the predator. But in a lot of ways, they're not Tom's not really going after Jerry to eat him. You know, when we watch an a Looney Tunes cartoon for example, you know, Wiley e. Coyote is trying to kill and eat the Roadrunner. Ed, uh, Edward, Elmer Fudd, <laughs> Edward Elmer Fudd is trying to kill and eat Bugs Bunny, right? They're actively going out and trying to do this. But Tom just seems to want to catch Jerry as a trophy in a way, which makes him, you know, kind of a jerk. But I think Jerry's a jerk as well as, you know, I, I will make that opinion very well known. Um, did you observe any of this while, while you're there, Ben? Uh, a little bit, yeah. I mean, I think there was one. There was one moment where where Jerry almost runs into Tom's open mouth, as if to be eaten. And I do question at that moment whether or not uh, Tom would have eaten was trying to eat Jerry. You know, Ben, I saw that more as a fear tactic because mm. I really, I really watched for it. And the, it's almost rare. You compare this to say Tweety and Sylvester. Right, where Sylvester is constantly shoving Tweety into his mouth and having to have him hit out. Um, Tom very rarely ever achieves this. And I actually, you know, Dan, it's an interesting question. They obviously don't talk a lot. I don't really get inside their heads. But I view this perhaps as training montages. I think the two of them are actually building each other's strengths. They're, you know, they're building each other for whatever the world is going to bring to them. They're, you know, they're a partnership. They're a team. And it's a mutual training relationship. Or it's a highly abusive friendship. I'm not sure which. <laughs> Well, that's that's a bonkers explanation, but I do love it. Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I'm going to go with the latter here, not to be that guy, which apparently that's my role in the show now is to be that guy. But I in some ways saw this as a, a more psychologically dis- and dysfunctional pinky in the brain. Right. I mean, they're the definition of frenemies for sure. But I don't think they have that warmth, that pinky in the brain, that warmth between them, that humanity that you love so much. Then I don't think that they have that. They're both very abusive physically and emotionally, but they do kind of like each other. I mean, they are frenemies. Uh, what do you think about that, Denon? Oh, I, I think there's a strong feature of that. They're often smiling and laughing at each other uh, through the pain. But maybe that's what it takes to get through the pain. <laughs> 
Well, you know, I, I don't know. I think, you know, and some of them, they even team up. I mean, it's it's very, this. what I love about the show is its unpredictability when it comes to those two. When you watch other cartoons, you know one is going after the other, but you will occasionally see Tom and Jerry team up and join forces against a much bigger foe. Uh, and, and you know, I, I really appreciate that and I love that. But, you know, we, we got to talk about one of my favorite episodes. It's called uh, Mouse Trouble. And in that, Tom is reading a book on how to catch a mouse. We're going to talk about this episode a lot, but I think you got will know chapter seven and that is be scientific in your approach and I think that that is what we're going to do today as we kind of navigate this world of cartoon physics now anyone who's watched this show is going to know that we excel at cartoon physics at our comic-con you know we do live comic-con panels we've done the science of the acme product catalog and hopefully we've inspired a lot of aspiring cartoon physicists but you know lots of people know Newtonian physics then and obviously you're an expert in Newtonian physics but we've only really discussed Looney Tunian physics, right? Where dynamite will only make you dirty. Um, this Roadrunner has supersonic speed. You know, sticking two fingers into a gun is going to blow up, blow up the gun in Elmer Fudd's face. But today we're going to look at an, an alternate, almost parallel set of cartoon rules that I've dubbed the Hannah Barbarian physics. And of course, not to be confused with Conan's third wife, Hannah Barbarian. <laughs> um, but I think really this is where we're going to go with this. But then you being our, our physicist, you being the the spearhead, the main person who really discovered quantum gravity, let's explore gravity. And I want you to dis- quickly explain your Nobel Prize winning uh, theory on quantum gravity. Well, quantum gravity is clearly a Looney Tunian physics um, type of physics. It's distinct to that world in many ways. And what we know is from the Roadrunner and Wally Coyote, where it's most prevalent, you, gravity does not happen until you notice it. And that's the core of quantum mechanics, that things only happen when you observe it. And hence, gravity being something that only works when you observe it, it is quantum gravity. And that's the heart of it. As quick as we can make it, there's a lot more going on here in Hanna-Barbarian physics. I can't wait to get to that. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and I want to just very quickly, as an observer, I want to talk about this and I want to get you what you guys think about this. Because here's what I'm observing as just the random person. Inside of, of, a, of Hanna-Barbarian physics, pain and fear seem to dictate how gravity works, right? Jerry bites Tom's tail. That pain shoots him skyward, completely defying the laws of gravity. As he comes back to Earth, Jerry sticks a knife out for him to land on. The fear of that knife seems to put a complete halt to gravity. That fear stops gravity in its tracks. These types of random emotions seem to adjust physics. How is this possibly explained? Then I'm going to ask you first. So really, Dan, what you're seeing here is, I think, clear, solid evidence for a fifth force. So in the world of physics, we know there's four fundamental forces, gravity, electricity, and magnetism, strong and weak force. And we also know everything is governed by F equals MA. You only accelerate when there's a force on you. And what you're pointing out is behavior that clearly seems to violate F equals MA if gravity, the only force around at that time, is working the way we expect. So there's two ways you can go with this as a physicist. You can say gravity is being changed and it's a different force, or you can recognize that there's a new fifth force. And forces are all mitigated by particles and interactions. And I think what you have here is the emoditon. We talk about the graviton, the photon, and other particles. We have the emoditon. It is a new particle that mitigates the emotional fifth force here. And it's both attractive and repulsive. And it allows for this behavior to be understood in a very coherent and clear way. 
Well, I, I think I don't know if you're if you have connections with the Large Hadron Collider, but I feel like we should find in some way, shape, or form this emoticon. And I think it begs the question: with this new fundamental force, with this particle, how would you navigate this world? And I think Ben, our engineer, is the only one who can really answer a question like that. Yeah. So it's really interesting. Once you once we've established this fundamental fifth force, you have to then you have to then ask the next question, which is how do you harness that fifth force? So for strong and weak force, engineers and scientists together have exploited that force through nuclear physics. Uh, we've created nuclear reactors. We've created nuclear bombs. Those take advantage of the strong and the weak forces in creating new elements and creating usually explosions or at least large releases of heat. Uh, when we're using those forces. With electromagnetism, we've done all sorts of stuff. We have electromagnets, to, uh, we have radio waves, we have electric fields, we have motors, we have all this stuff. Uh, most of our world is primarily driven by our uh, harnessing of the electromagnetic force. Then there's the gravity force, which so far, unfortunately, we haven't been able to do much about. Gravity is a much weaker force, um, and it only really acts if you have really, really, really really heavy objects, really massive objects like the Earth and the Sun. Those are the only objects that really uh, mass matters. So now we have this emotion force. How do we, the engineers, exploit that? And I think maybe one way to think about it is uh, looking at uh, Monsters, Inc., you know, another beautiful cartoon where fear is used as electricity. You can harness this uh, power you can capture it and then use it to um, move machinery. And, and Dan, I want to add to that. This tells us what we're going to need to propose to the Large Hadron Collider because mass is related to energy. And if we learn from Monsters, Inc. anything, laughter generates more electrical power than fear. And that's directly related, therefore, to the mass of the emote the emoticons that we're looking for, the emoticon particles will then have different masses. And clearly the laugh-on has more mass than the fear-on. Well, I, think, I think you've made that very clear on, for sure. <laughs> By the way, Dan, you've noticed physicists were not very, you know, creative. We just stick on, on the name of anything, and that makes it a new particle. <laughs> I, I love it. I mean, look, this is, this is what's great about it, is I think that there is untapped energy potential inside the world of cartoon physics, which really manifests itself in crazy and hilarious ways. And it's one of the reasons why I love cartoons so much. And I got to tell you, as we move on, I, you know, I think the, the gravity aspect is something that we have yet to harness, uh, but I think we're, we're getting really close to that. But also what's very interesting about this world in Hanna-Barbarian physics is the biology, right? The, the, the skin, biological tissue seems to have very strange properties, including extraordinary elasticity elasticity, the likes of which we haven't seen since, since Stretch Armstrong. I mean, if you pull in a, a leg, a tail, there's one scene where Tom gets his thumb stuck in a bowling ball and, you know, he flies down the, the bowling alley. I mean, this is really incredible. And I think it even extends to when Jerry eats, you know, a, a thing of a wedge of cheese and turns into the shape of a cheese. There's some very interesting things going on here. Uh, ben, you being on the borders of biology, what do you think about this? We don't ever, we don't see too many animals that kind of just reshape themselves to exactly the profile of what they eat. But we do see that a little bit with, say, uh, snakes. You know, when a snake eats a large meal, it, it bulges out a bit. Um, so th we there's examples of this in the current natural world 
where uh, both, you know, snakes really do kind of take on that shape. But even humans, you know, we talk about how, you know, uh, after, say, a Super Bowl party or a big Thanksgiving feast, you got to, you know, let the belt out one notch to make room, you know. So, you know, while you don't get that exact profile of the turkey going down your neck, uh, you certainly do affect your body shape by eating a large meal. I, I love where Ben went with that. I do have to say, Dan, I'm, I'm glad to see, I believe if I heard you right, you used the correct word. Um, these are clearly elastic situations. Um, when you look at the Tom and Jerry cartoon, there's, there's a fundamental difference between elastic and plastic. And it's often confused in the superhero world because you have Elasto Man and Plasto Man. Plasticity, from a material science point of view, is something where you deform the object and then it stays deformed. It doesn't come back. When you look at the behavior of Tom and Jerry's bodies, most of what you see is elastic behavior. You stretch it and it snaps back. And we see this particularly in the behavior of their tails. Their tails are very spring-like. Springs are the fundamental elastic um, material. And you can stretch and have them snap back in interesting ways. Um, there is particularly, I know we're going to talk a lot about the bowling um, alley episode. There is a great piece in that where Tom's tail gets tied around in a knot in an interesting way. And the physics of this bowling ball and his tail interacting really get to the fundamental, both elasticity of his tail, but something else, the incredible strength of that tail. The things it does without breaking are unbelievable. I think we have something even beyond spider silk going on here, Dan, which is going to be really important to explore. Yeah, and I think there's even one moment where um, you know the tail, the a mouse tail will spring, you know, will will have the the characteristics of a spring, but the whiskers that Tom has will break off. It's very similar to silly putty, which you know, as you put a little bit of force on it, it can snap, but you know, long force over a long period of time will actually stretch it out. You know, one of the things I, I like what you said there, Ben, because you know, when a snake, I hate to say this, when a snake eats a mouse, you can see that mouse <laughs> outline inside of the snake almost comedically, and also. I forgot. To, I didn't, this just came to me now. But the octopus, right? You can take an octopus and fit him into a small jar, and that happens to Tom sometimes. He'll end up in a glass of water if he jumps off a high, you know, like a high uh, diving board or whatever. And so, so this is really true. Uh, one of the other things that I find interesting about Tom's body is it can form and it can become different types of objects. So, for example, he's famously hit with a two by four, and his body turns into a table. You know, in Cue Ball Cat, which is one about the uh, him shooting Billy years with Tom with with Tom and Jerry uh you know he ends up getting bottled by a coke dispenser and there's another one where he is wearing skates and he gets caught underneath a door and becomes you know paper thin and turns into a sled there's something very interesting about how their bodies can become the objects that they're being hit uh what's your initial take on that Denon well you know it's interesting from both a physics and a biology point of view Whenever we have animals that do this sort of behavior in any situation in our superheroes or our cartoons, it's always a balance of the internal structure and stability, right? You have bones that are supposed to hold their shape and keep you rigid, and then you have yourself changing in lots of different shapes. And we know, Dan, the one material that is both able to maintain structural integrity but change its shape into all sorts of interesting ways is foam. So clearly... (laughs) No surprise to our, you know, studio audience or the live audience that's listening to this um, that we have to go with foam. This is clearly some sort of foam-based interesting world where even your bone structure um, is rigid when it needs to be, but then malleable 
um, when appropriate to the situation. And this may be very similar to the Looney Tunes physics, that there's a component of the, you know, in real foam, it depends on the force being applied and how long, whether the foam acts like a solid or a liquid, you know, takes the shape of the container or holds its shape. I think here it's the funniness of it. Right, so we have the funon again, right? Which is a new interaction. That the hilariton, right? The, the hilariton, even better. Yeah. I like yeah. that. Which then determines which physical state the body is in at that moment and what the reaction to the situation is. Yeah, I think that that's. I think that that's very, very accurate. And and I don't know. What do you think about that, Ben? What do you think about all this? It, it's it's great, but I also think we need to to not discount the abilities we see of regular cats every day on the internet where they fit themselves into tiny boxes that there's no way you, that a cat that large should be able to fit in a box that small. Or they can crawl under door gaps that, again, seem totally impossible. Uh, cats are very flexible creatures, and their, their skeleton is a lot smaller than you really think it is. And so, you know, cats can kind of massage their fur and their muscles down a lot and get through uh, gaps that you would never expect them to be able to. Well, I got to tell you, one thing I never expected us to be able to is to quote cat viral cat videos as scientific evidence for their <laughs> for their abilities to sneak under doors. But I think that that's brilliant, Ben. Absolutely. And and I think going along with that, one of the things I want to move on to it, along those same lines are, is really the physical inertia. How do objects? How is momentum carried? How does how is momentum transferred? And I think that you know both the billiard episode, cue ball cat. And and the bowling alley episode really show us how objects interacting with each other is very, very interesting. And I'm going to take one for example. Uh, you know, there's there's a scene where Jerry is standing down by the pins, and Tom grabs a bowling ball and just chucks it down the the alley as hard as he can. Jerry stands behind the pin. The bowling ball hits that pin and bounces off. And the momentum is transferred to the bowling pin, and it vibrates itself all the way down to Jerry, who kind of shakes it off. Uh, this is a very interesting transfer of momentum, and I'm wondering how you think this works, Denon. Well, really, Dan, this is just more evidence for the emoticons we've been talking about this whole episode, right? Because what's going on here in a normal situation, we all know there is a force of friction between Jerry and the floor. That's the ultimate force that would normally keep him in place in such a collision. And on a bowling alley with a bowling ball, there's no way that friction, which depends on his mass, would be large enough for this situation to occur. The, you know, the bowling ball would really just smash right over both of them. And though we know Jerry is strong, we also know that strength has nothing to do with this. It is just that friction between your feet and the ground. So clearly, there's more evidence for a fifth force here. And that is, and, and that vibration, we also see in physics, vibrations and these states are usually what you observe as an effect of these additional particles. And so clearly, his fear in that moment of getting run over by the bowling ball is what drives the generation of the furons, these excitations that show up as the vibrations that create the greater force between him and the ground that allows the bowling ball to be sent back towards um, Tom the cat, who I don't know why when things are sent back towards him, it's a, a different scene. He feels compelled to chase them down um, to try and catch them, but that's clearly a cat reflex there as well, just sort of throwing that one in. <laughs> 
You know, I, I think that that's an interesting part there. And one of the other things I want to mention in this scene is how when, you know, for example, you know, you mentioned Denon, he runs and chases down the ball. Well, that is an interesting effect of what happens to previously. And what happens right before that is Tom, the cat, throws a bowling ball, a second bowling ball down that alley. And Jerry, in his quick thinking, picks up a bowling pin and hits it like a baseball. So he hits a bowling ball with a bowling pin like a baseball, and what happens? The bowling ball then reacts like a baseball. So for all intents and purposes, the bowling ball is a baseball, and then that forces Tom to track it down like an outfielder trying to stop a home run. Uh, what do you think about that, Ben? Yeah, no, it, it, it's fascinating the power of the uh, fun-ons and the emodions. Emo you know, when you get down to it, you know, I, I mean, one, a mouse couldn't even pick up a bowling pin, but <laughs> ignoring that, ignoring that, that first primary axis, I think if you try to even swing it while on an oiled uh, bowling uh, lane, you'd probably spin not the, not the bowling pin itself. Like, the, you know, there, there's so little friction on that surface that really being able to do anything with a very heavy object would be exceedingly difficult. So there's a clear power of these emotion uh, particles that allow uh, allow Jerry to cause the bowling ball to react the way he wants and ca and cause the bowling pin to be able to be even swung as a bat as a bat. It, it does make me wonder, Dan, if there's a level of consciousness in objects in this world. If it's not just Tom and Jerry's influence on the world, but if objects, as you described it and as you were talking about, Dan, I just had this vision of objects sensing what the owner wants you to be, and the object changes its fundamental nature um, somehow through this. I, I'm wondering if I'm getting a little panpsychic or a little overly um, superstitious, but it is cartoon physics, Hanna-Barbera physics, not our physics. So I'm wondering if objects have a consciousness to them, and they maybe even pick sides in the battles at various times. Well, I'll tell you this. So one of the other things that I want to mention here, Den, and you're almost stepping on my toes, I'm about to lay down an amazing mind-blowing fact on all of you. But first thing we have to notice is I mentioned before that sometimes when you're hit, you become an, the object. For example, if you get hit with a sledgehammer, you become a spike, right? So Tom becomes a spike. Um, and I think what's interesting about that is I'm going to place forth what I'm going to call the first law of cartoon dynamics. And what we see here is occasionally situations will actually change the fundamental properties of objects. So a bowling ball should exist as a bowling ball, even within the realm of Hanna-Barbarian physics, but then when hit as a baseball, it becomes a baseball. So here's what I'm laying out. I want you guys to tell me what you think about here. The properties of a physical item are dependent on the situational forces acting upon it, i.e. bowling ball acts like a bowling ball until acted upon like a baseball. Then for all intents and purposes, it's a baseball until you realize that it's a bowling ball and then it becomes a bowling ball again. Um, I think this is actually pretty obviously I wrote it so I think that this is perfect but what do you think is our physicist Denon? Oh I love it and it's just a modification of you know sort of standard quantum mechanics where 
the you know an object either goes through both slits if you do not make a measurement or only one slit if you measure which slit it goes through it, you know its behavior changes depending on the situation um, you've just taken it to a whole new deeper level and it's actually I think necessary to really understand so many of the objects in this universe and what I find in the bowling alley episode particularly it is interesting there are times that the bowling balls do turn on Jerry. So, you know, Tom has this effect as well. Um, it's not just all one-sided. I mean, Jerry has an edge, but I think Tom takes advantage of this too. I mean, I think it's even more striking in the, uh, in the pool episode where the, a good chunk of the pool balls are chasing uh, Jerry deliberately in and out of the pocket. So clearly both of them are able to manipulate the object's intelligence and and intuition using their emotions and by reaching out and uh, causing the objects to think certain ways. I think that that's an interesting point. And that's a great, moving on to the next thing, is the physical objects of Hanna-Barbarian physics. They do, objects, physical objects, do seem to have their own level of intelligence. They do seem to pick sides, which I found this to be fascinating. I actually forgot this aspect. Um, And watching it again, it really kind of struck home for me. But you'll notice that the objects kind of do what they need to do or what they want to do. And a perfect example is in Mouse Trouble, when Tom has the book, How to Catch a Mouse. Uh, for some reason, I don't know why you'd buy a book for to catch a mouse and have chapter three be use a mouse trap, but l- <laughs> but that's what happens. And so Tom finds a hair trigger mouse trap. We watch him put cheese on it. He drops a feather on it, and bam! Instantly, the mouse trap closes. Right? We think Tom. Uh, we think Jerry is done for. He sets the trap down, walks around the corner. Jerry pops out of the hole, goes to grab the cheese, and of course the cheese is stuck on there. And we watch for 45 seconds as he yanks on the cheese, pulls on the cheese. Mousetrap does nothing. Finally, the cheese pops off. He goes back into the hole. Tom, dumbfounded, walks over to the mousetrap, barely touches it, and snaps on his hands. Clearly, the mousetrap has decided what side is he on, and it is not Tom. Uh, This is pretty scary if you think about applying this um, to a world. How do you predict what an object's going to do. Den, and I'm curious what you think. Well, I just have to admit, I have to say, I was totally confused as why the cheese was stuck. So <laughs> my my first thought here a little bit was, uh, you know, the mousetrap is kind of taunting both of them. He's like, you know what? I'm going to make Jerry work for this cheese a little bit. I mean, I'm going to get Tom, but I'm kind of like mean or all around, <laughs> you know, Sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which was, was really, a, you know, sort of an ironic view of the mousetrap. Um, but it does make the world that much more dangerous, right? And I think there's a karma aspect here, which we've talked about in some past episodes, perhaps, right? You know, um, Tom's intended use was to, you know, cause severe damage. And the device is like, you know what? I'm not really into that. I'm not kind of, you know, a violent, um, you know, mousetrap. But, you know, if you're going to do that, I'm going to get you back for that. And that's kind of the karma element. So maybe you navigate such a world by thinking clearly about your actions. And it makes us more more than ever to live that golden rule, you know, only do unto others what you want done to yourself because it's going to happen to you one way or the other. (laughs) Yeah, I think there's also something in the intention of their use of the – their actions around the the trap. I think Jerry is expecting the trap and and kind of thinking it and willing it to stay unsnapped, whereas Tom expects the trap to snap. So when he is playing with it, it does snap. 
Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. So they are through emoticons, uh, emoquan, emoquarks. What did we call them? <laughs> yeah, emoticons. 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 That I think that that actually makes a lot of sense, and I think we can actually apply that to what the last thing I want to talk about. Uh, and this is the most serious, as you mentioned, Karma Denon. Um, you know, guns. We see, and uh, you know, see, we see a couple episodes, and even pool cues as well. We see a gun get stuffed into a mouse hole but then somehow curve its way up and aim directly at Tom's head. When he pulls the trigger, the gun still fires, despite the fact that it's at an incredible curve. I don't even know if that's possible. But the other thing is, is that it almost seems as if the gun decides not to kill Tom and just punish him by burning his head and singeing his hair off because it's at point blank range. And that would be devastatingly deadly um, by by any stretch of the imagination. Um, So I don't know. What do you think about that, then? And is that along the same lines? Well, first of all, I loved while watching this episode that my kid turned to me and said, can that really happen, Dad? So clearly she's been highly influenced by our show and knows <laughs> that we're able to explain anything. Yeah. <laughs> but so, you know, it's funny. It goes to the two things here. The curving of the gun really goes to the material properties of this world, right? That they can either be foam-like and stretchy or rigid or not, depending on what they need to do. The gun needs to bend around the corner, so suddenly we have cold metal bending at obscure angles. You know, whether or not the gun fires at that radius curvature, I'm going to leave for the engineer, but I do have a comment on why it's not lethal. This goes to my fundamental opening point, Dan. This is all a training exercise. You know, Tom really does not intend to kill Jerry with the gun. So the gun was never loaded with a lethal charge to begin with. It was merely loaded with something to cause a little shock and awe. And so that is why the gun only takes off his hair um, and doesn't kill him. In my fundamental view, that was never the intent. Um, I don't think a gun can fire over that sharp angle, but again, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that to Ben to solve for us. Yeah, so, I mean, it depends a lot on what kind of gun it is. To me, it kind of looks like a shotgun, in which case, if it's shooting actual shot pellets, uh, that curvature would probably slow them down enough to the point where they wouldn't actually be lethal um, and you would just get a bunch of hot gases that would uh, singe off your hair, and maybe you'd get some hot pellets kind of raining on you too to, that would help with that burning effect. But they probably wouldn't be going fast enough because the, the gases can't uh, push them through the, that curvature because the sabot that carries the, uh, the shot wouldn't, uh, wouldn't have uh, maintained an integrity throughout that curvature. And I think sabots are really quintessential to anything when it comes to guns or cartoon physics. Um, and I'm going to look up sabot as soon as this episode is over. But I think we've we've really done a uh, we've saboted people with a lot of cartoon physics here. And I think we've nailed quite a bit. But we've reached our errors, additions, and omissions section. So if there's anything that we've missed, we can talk about briefly here. Denon, what do what do you want to talk about here? So I, I am fascinated by the property of skin in, 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 in the Hanna-Barbera world, particularly Tom. Um, there's many moments where his face just comes apart and back together. Like the face comes off, the head comes off. You know, I, I love that dynamic. Yet I love the realism. You know, as you talked about, when his hair gets shot off, unlike many situations, it does not grow back. And he needs a flaming red um, to, to pay for, for the rest of the episode. Yep. Um, doesn't match his fur color at all but it looks very stylish. So that, that combination there, that juxtaposition of being able to just have your face fall off and yet your hair not grow back, I think was beautiful in this, in this world. 
Well, it made me believe it more for sure, and there's nothing that I want more than a flaming red toupee parted right down the middle. I'll tell you that. So Christmas is just around the corner. Um, ben, what, did you have anything that you want to talk about that we did not get to? Yeah, so one thing I was really curious about is we there's another episode, uh, Mouse Capades, where we see them ice skating in, in the uh, flooded kitchen. And I think this is just another great example of this uh, intention of objects, in this case, the water. The water intends to freeze because that's what Jerry wants. Because in reality, to freeze that much water that fast, you'd need something like two to 3,000 refrigerators to uh, get the water water like that to freeze. And even then, it probably wouldn't happen in seconds like we see uh, in the cartoon. So clearly, there's an intentionality uh, to the water to freeze like that uh, quickly for the mouse. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it does the whole room slowly, but then there's a quick freeze setting and it, it goes instantaneously. So I, th- I think that that's right on point with what, what you're trying to say there. Um, I've got a couple here. A couple are pretty simple. In the first episode, Tom is actually called Jasper. He doesn't become Tom until later on in the series. Um, I grew up with a Tom and Jerry sleeping bag that uh, I think I still have somewhere in storage that I absolutely love to tell you how much I was into Tom and Jerry. And I discovered last night that there is a Tom and Jerry board game that I do not own. So again, uh, red flaming red toupee with a part down the middle. Tom and Jerry board game for those looking for last minute Christmas gifts. Uh, you got 11 months to figure it out. Um, you know, inside Jerry's hole, there's lots of really cool technology, almost Flintstone-esque technology, mostly out of matchsticks and thimbles. But I love the miniaturization of all the stuff inside of Jerry's hole because, you know, he is a creature and he loves his comforts. Uh, I-, I love that stuff. It's going to sound silly, but I was shocked by the immense violence violence that is actually in these episodes. You know, I watch a lot of football and they've just instituted the concussion protocol for the last couple years. And I got to tell you, there are more wax on the head and cats and mice seeing stars that someone should get involved and make sure that these guys don't have any long-term brain damage. Uh, But as we see later on in the series, that that may actually be the case. Clearly inspiration for Itchy and Scratchy, which is the funniest parody of all time from The Simpsons. Uh, That is (laughs) violence to uh, the, the nth degree. But in case we've missed anything, we've covered quite a lot. But if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us uh, on social media. You can get in touch with the show on Twitter, at FGGBTPod on Facebook, at FGGBT. Of course, we've got the show on YouTube as well. And if you want to get in touch with us individually, you can do that. We're easy to get a hold of. Denon, where can people find you? So people can find me on Twitter and Instagram. You just flip my name. It's at Denon Michael. And then find me on Facebook. You stick in the prof, at Prof Denon Michael. Ben, where can people find you? You can find me on all the major social media networks at BSeepser. Well, how do you spell that? B-S-I-E-P-S-E-R. And I can be found on Twitter at Daniel J. Glenn, on Facebook at Analytical Mastermind, and on Instagram at The Daniel J. Glenn. I bet you guys don't notice that I've switched those around every single time, so you got to listen very closely to see what I'm talking about. But if tomorrow you wake up in a cartoon world where your emotions control gravity and an anvil falling on your head won't kill you, enjoy it for a bit. With these newfound powers, you can figure out how you can be a superhero and not a supervillain. So until next time, thank you for listening. Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. Now, if you like this show, you're going to want to subscribe. Well, how do you do that? 
The good news is we're on all the major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and now Spotify. If you're not already on those platforms, don't worry. We've made it very easy for you. Go to our website, fgbt.com. That's fgbt.com, where you will find links to everything you're looking for. All the subscribe buttons at the bottom of the page. Links to our social media are right there. And if you go to the top of the page, you'll see a little button that says episodes click on that and go to your favorite episode there you can find the show in its entirety you can find the links that we talked about the in real life examples that we brought to you including videos and of course we've got each episode has its own youtube video you can watch it there if you prefer and if you like this show you're gonna like everything that i do go to danieljglenn.com to find out more thank you for listening